Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. My guest today is Dr. Misha Willett. Dr. Willett is the author of two critically acclaimed books of poetry, The Elegy Beta and Phases, and is the editor of Philip James Bailey's epic, Festus. He teaches in the English Department of Seattle Pacific University and in its Master of Fine Arts program in Creative Writing. His academic interests include romantic aesthetics, especially the spasmodics. Dr. Willett is an essayist, blogger, former podcaster, and a slew of other things, including a husband and a father. But what he also is, is a committed Christian who considers himself and his work to be in the service of God. Misha is here to share with us his faith, his art, some about his work, and how all three interrelate. Welcome, Misha. Thank you for being with me today. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, usually uh, I ask uh, for you to tell your spiritual journey, and this, particularly if you're an artist and also your artistic journey. Uh, but in our, our kind of pre-recording conversation, uh, you had said that you uh, those are two separate stories for you. Uh, so why don't we do that? Why don't we let you tell your spiritual journey and then come back and tell your artistic journey? Sure. They they overlap, you know, as all of these things must. Right. Um, right. Yeah. The, the way I came to faith, there's there's a lot of sort of ups and downs. I mean, the short version of it is that there wasn't ever a time in my conscious life when I wasn't aware of God's presence. I mean, I think from practically from infancy, it was just one of those things that I always assumed was had a palpable reality. Um, my family was part of the People's Church, which was sort of an offshoot of the Costa Mesa uh, Jesus music scene in, in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, it's really one of the earliest memories that I have. Uh, there was, we used to set up these record burning. I'm not sure if you're aware of this cultural phenomenon, but people who were getting out of hippie music and, and what sort of became sort of devil music, right? Rock and roll um, would come to parking lots. And part of the, the Christian worship service was burning their record collections in these oil drums. Oh my. Uh, and I remember this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it was a fringe sort of movement, but it's about the earliest memory that I have because it was crazy, right? There was two years old or three years old, and I saw these grown-ups making huge fires like they were, you know, liturgical candles, um, but full of those old markers of their identity. Um, so, so that was the the beginning of it for me. We, my family, moved around an awful lot, uh, mostly up and down the West Coast, but pretty much every summer we moved to a new house, um, and so it was. We didn't have anything like church communities we just kind of attend you know wherever we could um there wasn't a particular denomination we just liked places where it felt like the spirit was moving that's probably how we would have said it um at the time uh i ended up at wheaton college um when i went to school and i I loved my experience there but i went through the period that is now known as deconstruction of my faith we wouldn't have called it that then probably but that's what was happening it took some philosophy classes that laid siege to the idea of certainty, you know, how these things go. Um, and, and then spent a couple years wandering in deserts, literal and figurative, 
um, sort of trying to find my way back. Uh, that happened when I, I ended up in an Episcopal church, actually, when I was in graduate school. Um, I, I just wanted him, frankly, because the building was beautiful. So that, that's important. Aesthetics is what drew me back. I, I just saw whoever's making arches like that and stained glass like that, they must know something about, about the world and about the human heart. So I wandered in there and I tried to say the creeds um, during the service, but I couldn't because I didn't know them. And once I did know them, I, I didn't believe every line of them and it felt inauthentic to me uh, to be there. So I told the priest that and he said I should come back. I, I should just still come to be with God's people, even if I didn't believe a word of any of it that they were saying. And he invited me to sit in his office and just read his library, um, just peruse whatever personal books he had there. Um, and so that bit of grace did a lot of good work in my heart. I just I started coming and I sit in his office and I read skeptical theologians, um, John A.T. Robinson, Honest to God. I started reading Annie Dillard. Uh, I read Frederick Buechner books um, and eventually N.T. Wright. And, and they sort of built back all those points of orthodoxy that I had jettisoned um, in my own life. Uh, then I moved back up to Seattle, Washington, which was my long heart's home. And, um, and I, I found a very charismatic church with solid biblical preaching. Um, and it taught me for the first time that church could be not a, just something you did on Sundays, you know, but, but a real central part of one's identity. Like I wanted the center of my social life to be that church crew and not, that wasn't just something I did sometimes kind of power up. Um, and, and then I was in Europe for a while on various teaching and fellowships, uh, in Germany first for a year and then in England for a year. And that's where I discovered evangelical Anglicanism. Um, which is where I am now. My family's uh, founding members of a St. Ambrose Anglican church here. It was actually, I, I there wasn't an Anglican church in Seattle when I first came back here. I, I wanted there to be one. And so we prayed for probably six or seven years that, that there would be an ACNA-affiliated Anglican church in Seattle, preferably in our neighborhood. We got specific with our prayers. <laughs> and then one day I got an email from a guy who said, hey, I'm thinking about planting an Anglican church in your neighborhood. <laughs> Do you want to meet for, for drinks and you can help me come up with a name for it? Uh, and away we go. So, so St. Ambrose is three years running now and it's been the best thing that's probably happened to me spiritually. Mm. Mm. Well, what about then your artistic journey? Yeah, that was a, that was not an obvious one. I suppose my, um, my family weren't big readers. Um, I've, I've never seen, even to this day, my dad with a book um, or or my mother, which is one of those houses where there's a TV on rather often. Um, and But somehow I just started being drawn to this and I don't, I can't say where it came from um, unless we believe in something like, you know, the Holy Spirit's tugging at, at our hearts. Uh, we used to go to Costco when I was young and I'm, I'm one of five brothers and sisters, and all of the rest of them would just go and ha get the samples. You know what I mean? At Costco, they always have some people giving away toothpicks. And um, and I would find my way to the book section of Costco, which wasn't very large. It was right near the whiskey, I remember. Um, and and I would just read whatever was there. And a lot of them, this is how, how serious it was. Some of them were sealed in cellophane. I remember there was a, a box out of C.S. Lewis, for example, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. 
they'd be sealed in cellophane and I would just sit there for the 45 minutes it took my parents to shop just reading the descriptions of the books and dreaming about what they might be like in uh, inside. So that was my, weirdly my early sort of literary education. As soon as I started getting money from mowing lawns or whatever, um, we'd go to garage sales and I'd buy, I started buying poetry books from, and they were usually terrible. I mean, the kind of books that, you know, not only people in the, the Arizona suburbs bought, but then were getting rid of for 10 cents um, in a dusty box. Like it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the good stuff, but but I started sort of collecting it and I got, you know, I don't know why, but whenever it started, I know that in fourth grade, uh, I used to stay in at recess and my teacher would share with me poems that she had written. And that, and I remember, I remember even now lines from some of them, they were quite good. She was, she was a talented uh, woman. And I just think that now I think that's strange. I have a fourth grader. I have a daughter who's in fourth grade. And the idea that I would voluntarily miss recess, A, <laughs> to sit in by myself with a teacher to read her original poetry <laughs> and that I had opinions about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like now it seems rather precocious. At the time, it was just sort of what, what I was doing. But um, yeah, then and then uh, there I am back at, at, at Wheaton College. I wrote poems all through high school. That's when I started thinking about myself seriously as a poet was partway through high school. Um, I had a friend there actually that, that helped me along the way. There were two of us in the whole school that were interested in poetry. And we used to do these complicated verse forms that sort of either they were rhymed or they had a particular metrical scheme. And I'd write a line and he'd write a line and then he'd pass it back to me, but we sat on opposite sides of the English classroom. So we'd pass this note across five rows of students which meant everyone in school had to know what we were up to if we were going to keep it from the teacher. So we passed it to his side. He read a line. People would read it on the way and think, wow, what are these two uh, wild ones? But, um, and eventually my teacher caught on and I'd explained to her how important it was what we were doing. I remember one time we, um, I wrote a poem on my desk, like just in pencil, but on the actual desk surface and not on paper because I wanted to make a poem that only existed in time. I wanted it to be temporary. <laughs> Made it as beautiful as I could, knowing it would have to be erased right afterwards. Um, so then I, got, then I got to college and I took my first poetry class. Actually, I didn't take a poetry class. I wanted to and they weren't offering one, but I had heard there was one. So I found the woman uh, who was quite a fine poet herself, Jill Pelea's Baumgartner. Um, and I walked her to her office and I said, what is it going to take for you to offer a poetry class here? And she goes, well, we need an enrollment of at least like 11 people to make it go. And I, I don't know where this comes from in me, but I said, I'll find you 10 more students and, and you offer the class deal. And so I went around the cafeteria, went around my friends. Hey, if they do a poetry class in spring, would you take it with me? Yeah, okay, I guess. So we populated the class and, and had her uh, offer it. And it was great. It was the best class I took in, in college. Um, that's where I met uh, the poet Dana Joya. Uh, he came to give a reading um, at my school, and that was the first poetry reading I'd ever been to. And that was a pretty transformative experience for me. I, I, I absolutely fell in love. I was, I, that was the first time I realized that's something you could do and not just as a hobby to, that would annoy teachers and impress girls. You know, it was something you could have a kind of life. He was the first real life poet that, that I think I saw. Um, so yeah, that's that's when it got 
you know, rather serious. Pretty much at that reading, I decided that was the life for me. Uh, and then took the steps to make that happen thereafter. First, the MA at Northern Arizona University, uh, where I worked with some wonderful poets and generous. And then the MFA, I, I came up to Seattle. So that's how I ended up uh, in this sort of role. My first book um, came out on, it turns out, the same press that Joe Baumgartner's book was from, which is why I sent it there. I just knew that, that she had published on that as well. Well, how do you then uh, integrate the two experiences? Uh, you know, because there are, there are Christian artists who attempt to be, you know, specifically Christian. They're writing for a Christian audience and, and their, their content is Christian, where there are other Christian artists who, you know, don't deny their faith or they're, they're open about their faith, but at the same time, they're, uh, they're writing for the public at large. Uh, and so for you, you know, how, do, how, do, how does your art and faith work together? Yeah. And what do you see your primary audience to be? That's a question that I've wondered about actually for, for a rather long time. I know a number of um, people who are playing Christian music bands and they wrestle with mm -hmm. this a lot. Like, are we just musicians who happen to be Christians or are we Christian musicians and what would the difference be? So I saw a bunch of people wrestling with it and, and even the impact of that on their on their success and, and audience base. Um, for me, I think poetry is really unique among art forms in how much it asks of the audience. I think poems aren't generally finished until the audience finishes them in their head upon reading. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's you offer the sort of lightning strike, but like this vein of it has to come up and meet it for the charge to to kind of work, and that depends on um enough shared culture for the thing to work so actually i was going to tell you i just i just finished reading this book yesterday uh called the 90s um by chuck klosterman and it's a, just a history of that decade um and it was really a, a, a great reading experience for me because it was the first history book that i've ever read where i recognized every single thing in it every artist that he mentioned every television show every news item I was like, oh, yes, I remember that. Oh, yes. It wasn't a 350-page book. There wasn't a footnote that I didn't like, couldn't sing that song to myself or, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it was really, really, really fascinating. But I thought that's that's only possible because I, because I lived that, right? Like there's no amount of learning I could have done ahead of time to have that kind of indwelling, to join that community, right? Um, and so it, it, that's the way I think about it with my – my audience, the audience for my for my poems, and that um, if you don't have a Bible in your house, much of what's going on in my work is going to be lost on you. Do you know what I mean? It's not like I don't I don't need you to read it that often, right? But if you don't at least have one, if you didn't at least have that experience and know these stories at least in your background, even if you hate them now, like you're just going to be missing half of what's there of the sort of stuff that I do, you know. So anymore, versus cultural literacy. yeah, that's right. That's right. There's a certain cultural literacy. And I don't think that's true of all poets. I mean, some are just, you know, this is what aging is like, or this is what love is like, or this is what sunsets are like. And anybody that's experienced aging or love or sunsets, they are, they get it. They get what's there. Right. But that's not true of my, of my work. You, 
if you don't know anything about the book of Ezekiel, you might think, oh, that sounds neat. But you're not gonna you're not gonna know. It's not gonna ring around in your head and in your memory the way it's built to do. Okay. Well, uh, and then how about um, in what way do you see your art as serving God and kind of connected with that? Because, like, uh, you know, I've, I've been a pastor, and 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 historically, you know, there's there's this um, lineage, you know, from the sense of there's the prophet who gets the direct word of God, you know, mm-hmm. Amos, thus says the Lord, uh, or the word of the Lord came to, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah. And, and, and then, uh, you move into, uh, the apostles and, and the sense that, that they're inspired and that they, they give us the new Testament and, and that, you know, that, that those, that those words and writings are, are inspired. Yeah. And and it kind of carries over into the notion of the sermon, you know, mm-hmm. the pastor in his or her prayer life uh, is seeking God's guidance, uh, studies the scripture, meditates, and then on Sunday speaks God's word. Yeah. Uh, now it's, it, it it doesn't hold the same full sense of being inspired like the prophet, right. but there's that carryover of of you know. I'm trying to speak the word of God to my congregation. Yeah. Um, what about the poet? I mean, cause you know, I've been a church musician uh-huh. uh, and you know, and so, you know, the songs that we've been saying, we, we know that, you know, that these are the, for the purpose of helping people experience and connect with God and, and that God can use those. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, how do you perceive your work as serving God and in what sense that it, um, can be the word of God. Wow. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, and a, a, a daunting one, <laughs> you know, whenever you're, whenever you're treading on holy ground like that, it's, uh, yeah, that, that, that can be overwhelming. I, I would never presume just to, to say, I mean, I just think it's a rather separate thing to say that I was speaking, um, in any sense on God's behalf, except in the sense that I'm saying true things. I mean, there's a sense that like when I'm, when I'm making a poem, my first goal is to make it the thing that it was meant to be, right? There's a kind of, there's a kind of wholeness. There's a kind of perfection. There's an ideal type to which any particular individual poem tends. Yeah. And I take it my work to be unearthing that thing. And I think as much as I can do that with sort of, honesty and grace and even that honesty is not even right it's like veracity you know what i mean like to have said the true thing to have made something beautiful is to give glory to god it seems to me even if nobody likes it even if nobody reads it but this this germ this idea was born and it became the fullness of itself right like it's how many flowers like bloom and die and no human has ever seen them anywhere right like they're they're up in some mountains and they they live their entire gorgeous life whether it's a day or a week, uh, I still think that gives gl- glory to the creator. You know what I mean? There's no community around it. It does nothing particularly for anyone, but it was itself, in in the truest sense, right? The thing that it was created to be, and that's how I think about um, 
most poems. There's a, a late romantic thinker called Sidney Dobell. Um, he was a poet associated with the spasmodic school. Uh, and he, they're kind of like third generation romantics. He had this notion about the perfection of poetry. Like there's perfect poems and there's garbage and there's nothing in between. <laughs> like a poem is not a poem unless it's perfect, is, is what mm. he said. Mm. It's rather a high bar, right? I mean, how many pastors think I delivered a perfect sermon? To, you know, nothing could have been better. No <laughs> word could have, no pause could have been better. I hope, I hope most of them don't, don't sort of think that. But that really is the bar for poetry. Um, and amazingly, and I could be, I could be a sycophant about this. I don't, you know, I, I'm just, just a super fan, but I really think we have not a handful, but a few hundred poems, even just in English that do that, that can't be improved upon. They are a hundred percent real, right? They are, the, they are themselves in the most complete sense that, that they could possibly be. And I don't know other art forms wherein that's true. Um, so there is something in divine about them in that sense, it seems to me that there's a completeness. What do you call it that, you know, to the nth in the same way that, that God is the ne plus ultra, right? The, the, that beyond which no greater thing can be conceived. Um, poems weirdly play the same game, a different scale, maybe. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how I think about the way that I'm serving God. But, you know, he gave me these gifts and these tastes and these impulses, right? And then any individual poem that comes by. Now I do, I mean, just sort of practically speaking, I do pray before I sit down to write that, that what I'm doing might be hallowed um, in, in whatever particular way. But that doesn't mean I'm necessarily writing about God or Bible or, or faith. Although these days when I actually... Every time I sit down to write, that's the first thing I think. It just seems more important to me than everything else. I don't know if it's if that's right or if this is just where I am in my life, but nothing matters more to me than than the life of faith uh, at this point. So when I write, I try to write about ultimate things. Well, you um, it kind of connected. Uh, with the question you, you have as an academic interest, uh, romantic aesthetics. Yeah, right. And, and, and particularly the spasmodics. Yep. Uh, and I, there's a, there's a, a quote from the, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which I love. I think that's a wonderful resource. Um, on the, their 19th century rom, uh, romantic aesthetics, it says, um, the most characteristic romantic commitment is the idea that the character of art and beauty and our engagement with them should shape all aspects of human life. Being fundamental to human existence, beauty and art should be a central ingredient, not only in the philosophical and artistic life, but also in the lives of the ordinary man and woman. Um, is there a sense, I mean, is, is, is that what attracts you to the romantic aesthetics? <laughs> and... You know, probably it is. As a scholar, one might hope I would have more reserve about it. Like, I, I don't think all medieval scholars of medieval literature, for example, or medieval history, medieval philosophy, don't think like medievals. 
right? right. And I don't think even most Victorianists think like Victorians. They're probably rather critical of most thought and work in the Victorian age. They just happen to know a lot about it. I'm one of these true believers, though. And when I when I read the Romantics, I'm thinking, Amen. That's exactly right. Like it it does it for me still. I don't think they're wrong about these things. Yeah, I think um, the stories that we inhabit end up shaping people. That's that's the first and truest thing that relates to the book that I just read as well. Like, what is the difference? The real difference between boomers and Gen Xers and millennials and all this, whatever cliches and, you know, they, they gather unto themselves. Essentially what happened is these are people that encountered this sort of story at formative years in their life. And these people encountered this other kind of story at formative encounters in their life. And of course, being a pastor, you would, you would know this as well, right? Just hearing the gospel changes people. I mean, the Holy Spirit changes people, right? And the community changes people and the practices, all those things inform and change. But I really think just nothing has changed my own spiritual development so much as communally reciting the Psalms. It's just been extraordinary. I lived, you know, 40 something years reading the Psalms before I realized that's not what you're supposed to do with them. You're supposed to say them with people. And just having that wash over me has changed everything about how I view the Bible and my heart and my duty, you know? And I actually think that that idea is a kind of romantic notion. That's what they're pointing at. They say, like, you need to have some other thing, not your own observation, not your own, like, fears and anxieties, right? Not just the society sort of guiding you, but there are texts that exposed to the right sort of being will will create this kind of spark that changes that, that changes things about who you are and i don't think that's wrong i i don't know i don't know how many people um agree with that or think that way these days i know some people think reading makes you more empathetic or something like you know you should read long novels and that way when you meet someone who's complicated you'll know what to do um but I don't think that's quite the romantic project. I think just the participation in beauty asks something of you that I would say, I don't, most of them wouldn't say it, of course, but that I would say God put in you. Among the hungers we have, this is something C.S. Lewis would probably agree with, right? Among the hungers we have, whether we have thirst and we have physical hunger, we need sleep and et cetera, et cetera. But we, we hunger and thirst for beauty. People shrivel up without it. You know, um, and I have to think that that's part of the design of a creator who loves us and happened to have placed us in a beautiful world. Well, you mentioned that 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 was kind of what drew you into the to the Episcopal Church was the beauty of the building. Yeah, that right. And thank experience. God. Yeah. Um, well, in, in your article uh, on on uh, the challenges of literature departments but you talked about uh that one of the opportunities uh is that reading is a social act um and 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 you know as christians like like you said we we do that ever ever sunday yeah uh right. with with elections uh yeah. you know if, if for those that follow the christian years particularly you know the, yeah. there's, there's the readings 
Uh, but, but, but how does that spill over for you and then in, into poetry? Yeah, that's something that I came to, um, fairly recently. Um, I just, so many readers are solitary types, right? Um, and this is something I, I suppose probably just comes out of my, my personality. I'm a, I'm a social kind of animal. Um, and, but I, I'm an English major and I teach English majors and I've taught for five universities now in, um, English departments. And usually those are solitary types, even lonely or introverted types, right? People that want to hunker down with a pile of books and have everyone else leave them alone. But that's not me. Life of the party, like bring me the people. Like I never need to be alone. Like I just can't wait to, to, to be around people. And so I found some sort of conflict there. And I suppose this idea of, of mine is probably a way to try to reconcile those, those worlds. Um, that reading doesn't have to be a solitary act, and maybe it's not best when it's that. I mean, of course, that's built into the long history of literature and storytelling, right? Uh, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey being told around campfires, you know. Um, the, the Old Testament scriptures being read to, allowed to illiterate Jews. You know what I mean? Like there's, you would go and you'd hear with other people, and I think there's something really important about having those images, having those revelations hit you at the same time that they're hitting other people? Because everybody knows this, right? Whenever you encounter something beautiful, your first instinct is to share it. Everybody, even if you're, even if you're by yourself, I mean, you you read something on the train by yourself. I used to live in London and I'd sit on the tube and there people still read books on the train. Um, they're not all on their phone all the time. People pull out a novel and they'll be reading. And if I read something wonderful, even just a line, my instinct was to look up and like grab somebody like, hey, oh my gosh, you won't believe what I just saw here. You know, like, why do we do that? Or you see a shooting star and the first thing everybody does is look around. Did you guys see that? On the, on the one hand, it doesn't matter if they saw it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? You saw it. That's great. That should be good enough. You saw something amazing. Praise God. Take that, you know. But no, that's not what we do. We say, did anybody else see that? And then if they didn't, we say, oh, man, like it didn't happen. That's a very strange sort of thing that people do with everything. You hear a song that you like and people tweet about it. Let me tell a bunch of strangers how great this song is real quick. Why? <laughs> do you know, is it because there's something social about beauty that you want to participate in it with other human beings? So in that article, one of the things I'm trying to do is to get people who are in charge of shaping English department curriculums, especially at the college level. but but wherever to think about how the experience of literature could be more social, whether that's, you know, you have a Halloween party and we read scary stories together because it's great to be scared together and to be reassured together, you know, Christmas parties and you read Christmas stories. That's what I do in my house. I throw a Christmas party every year and we read around, we pass a book around and everybody reads different bits from, from Dickens or whatever it is. Yeah. Cause there's joy right? In that that's art is better when it's shared with people. Yeah. I think that's a great image. Uh, and I agree with you. I think that's, that's, you know, uh, I love the way that you said that, uh, that there's an importance about, uh, the need to share beauty. It's weird how often we don't do it though. You know, like, yeah, I think that's true, but most people just, I don't know, contentedly smile. They're like, okay, I, I saw that show where it's like, oh man, come on. That's not what it's for. Well, I love the, um, 
uh, in your webinar uh, for the CF Lewis Foundation um, called, mm -hmm. you know, creative in the image of God. Uh, and, and you, and you, you borrowed Denise uh, Levertoff. Am I saying her name right? Mm -hmm. um, sure. Her, her, uh, image of a work that in faiths. Right. Uh, that's such a powerful and wonderful image. Um, talk about, talk about that both in, in the context of the academy of, of what you're doing, you know, educating the general student mm -hmm. and then how that goes into what you're doing as a Christian artist. Yeah, this, I really, I really love that that image. I love, I love Denise's work. Um, she was a, a Seattleite actually, and so I weirdly own a number of her books, like not books by her, but her own personal library. When she <laughs> died, ended up in local used bookstores that mm. I also frequent, and so oftentimes I'll pull down just some random book by Yates or you know whatever it is, Ted Hughes, and inside is her signature from the library. Like, oh, great. I'll just have this one. So I feel like I'm inheriting not just that concept, but also like some personal, like totemic objects that, that she had in her life. And I love, even that's that phrase. It's so funny. Like it's a small example of the work that poetry does for people that don't read poetry very much. Isn't it funny? Even just that, just, you just say creative in the image of God work that in faiths and immediately people already, I don't know. There's like a, you lean forward. Do you know, like, wait, what could that be? I think that's wonderful. I think that's glowing. You know what I mean? There's some, there's something special about it that makes you want. And I think that's the first step in art, right? Is that, that kind of uh, desire. Um, then the notion in, in brief is that, you know, most people want a faith that works. They're looking for uh, faith to give them stuff to make their day-to-day -day life better. Um, I, I think what, what she's talking about, which I fully recognize. I mean, from from a, a lifetime of various church going, how many times I heard sermons that were basically like, you know, this is what's going to be like in your cubicle. This is what conversations you're going to deal with at the water cooler. Here's how your faith can help you through those circumstances. And OK, that's that's fine. Like that is useful. That is a lot of people's life percentage wise. Right. Um, but. Um, Denise Libertov's idea is that maybe faith isn't just sort of the juice that gets you through your humdrum existence, but maybe like the, whatever work you do, whatever work God has given you to do, especially if it's, it's a vocation that you actually feel called to, right? Maybe there's a way of doing that in such a way that it builds your faith. Like there's another half of that circle. Faith will inform your work for sure, but let's hope that your work is giving glory to God and drawing you closer to him and serving others, right? In some way, even if it's a distant kind of way, if you're a farmer or something like that, okay. Um, so that's that's the the nexus of, of the idea. For me, actually, this ties most acutely in with my work um, with writers. So I also teach in the MFA program at Seattle Pacific University, working with uh, not necessarily young writers, but plenty of them are older writers too, but um, people that have decided to take their work rather more seriously than they have thus far, however old they are in whatever country that they're from. It's, it's an international kind of draw. Um, and that's something, this concept is especially useful for, for those people, people who decided to, to be artists or to give this thing a real go. 
um, because they're going to be doing a kind of work, right, out of the extra. They, they often have a, a jobs and families and everything else. They're going to have to squeeze this in somewhere or change something about their life in order to, to give it the time that it deserves. Um, and we're trying to do that as faithful people. We're trying to do that as, as Christ followers. Um, so we need to find a way to not just get burned out. I mean, that's the phrase everyone uses, right? Even whether you're in a normal job, but especially if you have a side hustle of some kind, you're trying to write for two hours in the morning before the kids get up, right? How long is that going to go on before you're not only completely exhausted, but starting to fail at your normal job and maybe your job of raising the kids, right? You need to find a way to, to rest, recharge, and have one thing inform the other so you're not just depleting yourself all the time. The um, article that you wrote on the spasmodics on Shelley's afterlife mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and the spasmodics uh, admiration of Shelley. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a quote in there that kind of seems to bear on this, uh, where you say that um, the Chartist saw poetry as essential to the movement, uh, which was a social movement relating mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, kind of working class rights. Yes. If right, I understand right. it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but that, that poetry was essential to it because it transforms consciousness. Yeah. Talk about that. And does that, is that bear upon what you're trying to do with the general student? Hmm. Yeah. I, I love, I love this, this genre, um, of work that, that, the Chartist imaginary. Now, the first thing I should say is that my work doesn't ever try to be overtly political. Um, I know plenty of poets who do that, and I love a lot of that work. Um, I think political poetry can be very, very powerful. And a lot of, well, all, almost all of the Chartist poetry was, and much of the spasmodics uh, poetry was as well. My own poems usually aren't. I'm, I'm trying to serve God and beauty uh, before I'm trying to change anything about the world. Now, if the world changes in, you know, sort of response there too, well, then that's beyond my pay grade. Um, but I think, I think what, um, I think that's Ernest Charles Jones who, who, who said that came up with that notion that you're talking about there. Um, he's saying that if we want to change anything about the, about the world, especially about the political structure of the world, it has to start with imagining a different future. And that seems just patently true, right? To take any number of uh, changes, we could call it progress, uh, right? But Or people who can vote that didn't used to be able to vote or rights we might be able to have. Someone going to the moon. Do you know, like, who thought of that? Who thought that was a practical idea? How many generations of people thought, oh, man, I wonder if I could get up there until someone said, I wonder if we could get up there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's different. And that the thing is, all that took was an idea that was born from the imaginary. Someone had to think, no, but really, I wonder if we could really do that. And after that, uh, uh, the technology has to catch up. The technology didn't exist when they had the idea. It will catch up to the idea. I read this somewhere, God, when I was really young, and I wish I could imagine where it was. And it was, it was something like, if you want to create a, uh, a people who voyage, you don't 
build a bunch of ships and then try to convince them to get on them and, you know, launch themselves in the water. You teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And I thought, that's that's the chartist imaginary. That's the idea right there. You don't make a bunch of technology and say, hey, everybody, this will be great. Like, you do this. No, no, no. You say, you know what would be really beautiful? Just being out there. Just that freedom. Boundlessness. Right? And you plant that as a beautiful idea rather than something terrifying, for example, uh, in their heads. And then, and then they're like, oh, you're right. And they catch it. They catch it like a disease. And then they're like, oh, quick, here, I'll make a boat. Because then you're working with an entire generation's intelligence and ingenuity and labor, right? Instead of one person or one small group of people trying to, to drive it. I, I hear sometimes things that seem ridiculous to me now, but, you know, that pet someone, uh, it's anecdotal, but that Petrarch was maybe the first person to climb a mountain for fun. You know, like for 10,000 years before that, people had mountains, of course, they were there, but no one thought to walk up one. Yeah. If we believe that, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but it's an interesting idea, right? Like someone had to say, hey, I bet it's cool up there. I bet there's something worth experiencing up there. And people are like, no, I walked up a little bit. It was hard. I'm going to stay here, <laughs> right? But someone just had to sell in that vision. And that, I mean, I guess we know that it's true that so much of the North American um, wild was not at all beautiful, not considered beautiful until the romantic movement, right? It was, right. there's places in New England where I, I was at a school giving a reading one time um, and the forest nearby was called Satan's Kingdom. <laughs> I thought, goodness sake, and that's, that's on the map, that's on US maps even still. Why would anybody name it that? Well, it was a forest. And in this, in the, you know, early 17th century, forests were terrifying. That's where witches hang out. That's where savages hang out. It's probably where demons hang out. That's dangerous, right? Now I live in Seattle, Washington. The forest is the dream. We pay all this money to just go out and be in it and sleep in it, you know? It's a complete reversal and nothing changed. It's not that the forest changed. It's always been what it's been, right? It's just the imaginary that changed. We heard enough stories about the forest to think, oh, no, that's not scary. That's beautiful. Oh, that quietness, that's actually good, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, that's, that's one of the small ways that art in general, but, but um, any sort of, especially linguistic manipulations of the imagination can yield actual results in people's lives and in the world. Well, you use an image uh, in your uh, webinar um, that I, I really love, and the word especially, I think is such a wonderful word. Uh, but you talk about the power of poetry as when it's done right. You said when, it, when it's done right, when it's read right in particular, I believe you said, um, enables you to smell and, 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 and touch and, 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 you know, and that, let me see, let, let me, let me get it, let me get it right. Um, that poetry gives us taste, touch, and smell of things that reminds you that you're a creature in time. And that if poetry is read right, it provides us with, and here's the word I love, sensorium. Mm -hmm. That's such a good word. Uh, uh, it provides us with a sensorium, touch, smell, memory, desire, uh, that there is something about the way it hits our intellect at the same time that it hits our senses that gives us our bodies back. 
Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Develop that. Yeah, that's we're going to read the poetry. <laughs> right. Okay. We're, we're setting up for it. Um. Yeah, I've I've been trying to. That came out of my my thinking about. I'm trying to put my finger on why poetry is capable of doing what it can do. Um, and that's, you know, and that this is actually related to something I said just earlier in our conversation here about Christian music. I'm trying to think about why um, I teach a class on faith and literature at, at, at Seattle Pacific. It's usually for incoming freshmen. Um, and I bring to their attention genres that I think wouldn't exist without Christians, uh, Christian literary artists making them or wouldn't exist at all in the same form. So we spend a week on hymnody, for example, just reading through the great hymns. Some of them will have heard them. Some of them will never sing any of them, right? But that's a huge body of literature that just exists that most people are happily ignoring. Um, and we spend a week on uh, apocalyptic literature, right? End times sort of writing. Again, not, not something that really exists without, without Christians thinking about the eschaton and all that. Um, so anyways, uh, thinking about hymns, and I was wondering why I find them at least so powerful. Um, not just, not just as, well, as poetry, but it's, but it's something different because I'm a crier. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm an emotional worshiper. Uh, it, just one of those things I, I can barely anymore and it's getting worse or better depending on your perspective. But I, I do the readings at, at my church. I just did last Sunday. I can barely read scripture aloud without choking up and weeping. Almost doesn't matter what the passage is. I just find so much there. Like there's, and it, and it's part of what, what your question is. It's the fact that this is hitting me everywhere all at once, right? I'm thinking about the history of Israel and of God's covenant with his people and, and the Holy Spirit's work in my own heart and the people that are hearing this around me, because I can see their faces when I read it to them, you know? And all that stuff is happening at the same time as I'm hearing about the lilies of the field and trying to recall what a lily looks like as distinct from a marigold. Or, do you know what I mean? Like, all my mind is fully engaged and my memory is fully engaged. My body is fully engaged and my social sense, right? It's just hitting me in all those places at once. And I'm I guess that's what I'm trying to solve when I think about these things is why does that, why does it do that to me? And because nothing else does. I've, I care very, very deeply about painting uh, and about theater. I teach history of drama as well. Um, but there's something about, about literature specifically, about poetry even more specifically, that I just find devastating. And the thing is, I know, I, I see it happen to other people. Maybe that's just what it is because it's the genre that I'm involved in. But I give poetry readings and, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting in a room and there's, a, you know, 75, 100 people sitting there and people don't breathe. Do you know what I mean? I'm just there saying some words like it's not what are they what is happening when there's a movie? People breathe. They shuffle in their seats. They eat popcorn. They chat to the person next to them, even though it's dark and you're not supposed to, even though you're bothering someone else. Right. In a poetry reading. Now, again, if it's done right, if the poems are doing what they're supposed to do and the reader is doing what he or she is supposed to do. It's transcendent. I don't know. It's you. You feel like you have to be given permission to have your next thought or to take your next breath. And then when it's over, you the whole room breathes at once. 
You know what I mean? It, it falls over you. Oh, well. So, so I, having seen that happen, this is not something that started intellectually. It's something that I witnessed sociologically. And I'm now going back and looking for an explanation for it. Well, with that, you're going to read some of your poems. <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> I'll do what I can do. Um, yeah, thank you for that. Thanks for this conversation. Uh, well, thank you. It's been so great chatting with you here. Um, I thought... And your students are right, by the way. You do look like Scipio Africanus. <laughs> you read that one. <laughs> For those of you at home, this is, this is a short poem from my first book, Phases. And it's something that Scipio Africanus was a Roman general. Um, and I teach, I teach a study abroad trip uh, to Rome quite often. I've, I've taken maybe six summers worth of students over to Rome. And there we are confronting these heads, you know, these, these busts and... <laughs> Every year, it's a different student every year. But I'll get to that museum and someone's like, hey, that guy looks just like you. <laughs> My people are Italian, so it's, it's entirely possible this is a distant, rather distant <laughs> connection. <laughs> okay, um, so I'm going to read a brand new poem first, I, I thought. This one hasn't been published anywhere, but um, I wanted to, to give you something. Thank um, you. This is, uh, I, I work in a very beautiful campus at Seattle Pacific University. Most, most college campuses are quite, quite lovely. They're, they're my favorite places. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to, to work in, in them, as I mentioned earlier, drawn by aesthetics, <laughs> I could either work in churches or college campuses because they're the most beautiful places that, that are around. Right. That's, that's important to me. But one of the reasons they're that beautiful is because of the, the hard work of our groundskeepers who I laud and treasure. Um, but uh, what that practically means is often when I'm trying to record a podcast or come up with some poetry to write or just think, or um, there's a leaf blower somewhere in the background. <laughs> we live in the Northwest. There's trees everywhere. They're always dropping detritus on our beautiful green lawn. And our... Um, <laughs> Our groundskeepers are And that's eager. why we're having this conversation this late at night, because yeah. that same thing happens outside of my window. Oh, so you know what I'm talking about. Then then, then yes. this one's for you. Yeah. Um, the poem, so this is about that. About, you know, if you couldn't, if you couldn't hear, like sometimes I close my windows when I, I don't want to hear what they're up to, but I can still see. And sometimes because the way my windows work, I don't see the leaf blower or the man holding it. I just see the leaves take off in some way that I know to be physically impossible, but it takes me a second to, to register like, oh, that must be. And, and this, you know, just to go back to what we were saying earlier, this uh, Percy Shelley, the, the romantic poet, has that line, um, drive my dead thoughts over the universe like leaves, like leaves from some enchanter fleeing. That's the line that he has. Like there's a, a wizard pushing the leaves sort of, but it's just the wind, right? It's an, it's an ode to the West Wind. In my case, it's not the wind, it's these leaf blowers. So here's a poem, but then, of course, it's also about us, called Dead Shall Rise. Thanks to the ubiquitous suburban aversion to rake, which I take to be a sub-function 
of an associated suspicion rework, one can now see it in meat space, as I think the new term is for real, most days, even in rain. The rise, as browning, skeletal, blood once red even, or golden, over leaves just up, lifted, angelic, or anyway, lively, by how could they know what? Uh, to me, that um, brings together, as you talked about, the the normal uh, and that that worker, right? Uh, with that sense of wonder, yeah. If you look at it right, right. If you just cock your eye a little bit, and yeah, I mean, and of course, that's that's it's supposed to be on one level about the the work of the Holy Spirit we things happen in our lives sometimes there i am and i thought i was dead and now i'm dancing in the breeze and what's that and i'm just skeletal but now i'm now i'm pushed along by some force i don't understand right how could they know what how do the leaves know what? they're just hanging around and then all of a sudden there's this machine whoa and then you are flying with a whole troop of other people that's going to happen to all of us you know maybe i'll be skeletal and browning and i'll be in the ground and maybe it'll have been 100 years and then and then this force will just start from I don't know where or why or who's holding the leaf blower, but, up, but off I'll go. That's something I believe. That's a wonderful image. Um, thank you. Thank that. you. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'll, I'll read one from my, my second book then, uh, The Elegy Beta. Um, How about, I was going to read one, but now I'm changing here. I'm calling an, I'm calling an audible here. Oh, yeah, I like, I like, so, so, okay. Oh, I like all these poems. What am I going to do? <laughs> uh, I, I made them. <laughs> There's a reason I made them the way that I made them. Um, oh, here's, here's one called Past Participle. Um, and... This is a true a, a true story that I had had one year wherein three of my grandparents died. One reaches a certain age where that sort of starts happening, but it was not coincidence that it happened all all in one year. So I was trying to think about that and and from there thinking about meaning and what those coincidences or any coincidences might mean, you know. So how this is something Christians wrestle with all over, right? Things happen and we think so is that a sign? Is that right? Like, how do we know when this is when this is uh, from God, or or when this is just a random sort of assemblage of events? Past participle. This year, I had three grandmothers die, which is not sad, because with baking lasagna, and crocheting nighttime hats for children I don't have, it's what grandmas do. More, of course, than those few took their leaves, flew off, sailed on reed skiffs to Caravie if they were modernists, like one was, or went to wherever laughing lapsed Catholics go, who shuffle about the kitchen at night looking for cold chicken. One can be forgiven then, or I can, which is to say, 
you will if everything recently looks to me a premonition essay on mortality old woman opens cold into a coffee store couples step into the street trusting traffic to stop a raven crashes into its shadow sure but a pigeon two kids holding the warmth of their half-wrapped burritos but that's a bit of a stretch the stretch this mess one of my um friends and folks that i interviewed uh is a percussionist mm. uh, michael moses and uh he is the closest thing to a percussion monk <laughs> uh, that I know of because his spirituality is expressed through his, his, oh, percussive, yeah. his percussion. And, um, and he talked about the importance of the silence Yeah, after the performance. Right. And that's how I felt after you just finished reading that. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a great thing to, to, to notice. And then, you know, again, it's one of those things that, poetry gives us and it's one of the things that faith gives us and there's not a lot of things that give us you know a proper pregnant silence you know what i mean like that yeah. people find it hard to to stop saying stuff much less to stop actively thinking and criticizing things every second right or at least that's how my brain works like opinion 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 right but something about poetry quiets the mind enough to where you can actually inhabit the silence and then of course, that's what you mentioned earlier. It gives you your body back in a way, right? Because you're suddenly just a breathing animal. You're just, you're just a spirit. You're not going anywhere for it's seconds, but it's, but it's not nothing. Uh, can I read one more? Absolutely. <laughs> here's, here's a, here's a, this is a short one. Um, it just, this isn't one that came out of just practical life circumstances. I'm, I don't think I'm an aggressive driver, but I'm an unhappy one. <laughs> I, I, um, <laughs> I prefer, I, I prefer to ride a bicycle or to walk everywhere that I'm going. Um, I just, it's with the television. It's one of those inventions that I'm not sure was mostly good. Um, I just don't like being in cars. I get car sick. I always have, uh, and traffic. I don't know why it makes me so upset, but when people do things that I don't think are proper in their vehicles, nothing boils my blood quite so 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 quickly <laughs> and unreasonably. Uh, so this this little poem makes an extended metaphor about. <laughs> so I used to have. You might appreciate this. I used to have a. Um, uh, that's a little embarrassing now, <laughs> but when I was in high school. I had a, a bumper sticker on my very first car that said "Real Men Love Jesus." Yeah. And part of it is, you know, this macho thing that 16 year old males with their first car might be trying, like, I'm a real man, right? But <laughs> part of it, even then, I would explain to myself, no, 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 like, just pe people who are real, like the, the most complete, like being the thing you were created to be is to love Jesus. You know what I mean? If you're not doing, you're missing a part of your, your humanity in that way. Um, but what, what I was constantly conscious of in that car was the way I, probably should drive with that bumper sticker you know 
I couldn't, I couldn't be my uh, aggressively instinctual kind of self because there I am proclaiming it on the back of my, I never had one of those fishes like you see on, on some cars, but it, it wasn't a, a great remove. This poem is called No Witness. Cut off, I arrest momentum, broken, but no bones. Indecent, yes, but no incident. Instinct strengthened, strength thus threatened, I bristle, curse, and mutter. What was it I'm supposed to do unto another? Turn? I'm turning. Do they not see it? Or is my signal out? Yeah. That integration of daily experience with faith. <laughs> right. That's the work. It's a daily thing. You can't just stay in your head and it can't stay in your quiet time either. It's right. You know, I'm signaling this. Is everyone seeing it or are they not seeing it? Am I? Yeah. And, and it, it, it's what's happening in you. And it doesn't matter whether they perceive it or not. It's yeah, that's right. Nothing happened. No incident, no incident, but yeah. <laughs> something happened still, you know? Yeah. Is it, is that feeding your faith? Is it drawing from it? Well, the work you do is powerful and wonderful and important. Thank and I'm deeply grateful for this conversation. Uh, this has been a joy. As am I. It's been, it's been great to chat with you here. Thanks so much for your time and for um, caring about this stuff in the first place. Well, hopefully we'll do it again. I'll look forward to it. All right. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.